This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. And this evening, I think for the first time as a co-host, I'm joined by David Adler. Um, David, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I've been waiting months for this invitation to join you as a co-host on the show. It's an, it's an honor, it's a privilege, but it's also one that has arrived a bit late, Michael, if I do say so myself. David Adler generally serves pretty much, I, I think, as our South America correspondent, general coordinator at the Progressive International, a dashing young man. Um, we will be discussing the new president of Argentina, um, an anarcho-capitalist later on in the show. And we'll also be discussing a lot about the war on Gaza. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's get straight on to our first story. More than 5,500 children have now been killed in Gaza. The UN chief, Antonio Guterres, has put that figure into grim perspective. As you know, we report every year on children killed in armed conflict by different actors. Uh, I have already presented seven reports. In the seven reports, the highest number of children killed in one year by one actor was by the Taliban in 2017-2018. The second by the Syrian government and its allies in, uh, again, uh, before 2020. And again, it was around 700. We have had uh, Russia last year, 350. We had Saudi Arabia, if you remember the uproar in relation to Yemen. In one year, the maximum, 300. Now, without entering into uh, discussing the accuracy of the numbers that were published by uh, the de uh, facto authorities uh, in Gaza, what is clear is that we have had, in a few weeks, thousands of children killed. So this is what matters. We are witnessing a killing of civilians that is unparalleled and unprecedented in any conflict since I am Secretary General. I mean, you can see why he wants to emphasize that, because he's constantly getting called out by Israel, saying, oh, he's anti-Israel, he's obsessed with us, why doesn't he talk about conflicts elsewhere? He's laying out the numbers, right? The costs of this war on civilians, and in particular children, is just unparalleled compared to any other conflict. He has um, been in that job to oversee for seven years. He's been in that job, right? So you can see those numbers just... And I mean, it makes sense. You've got this total war on an incredibly densely populated small bit of land, um, as we will talk about later on in the show as well, um, pursued by a government which is using really genocidal language, right? So it's not a surprise that they are killing lots of people. That doesn't seem to be a bug. It seems to be a feature. In total now, around 13,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks on Gaza. And those attacks continued across the Strip over the weekend. In the city of Rafah, near the Egyptian border, homes were demolished in an Israeli airstrike. 17 people are reported to have been killed. In Khan Yunis, where many Palestinians displaced from the north of the territory have sought shelter, a mass funeral was held for those killed in a bombardment on Saturday night. Israel has warned that they will be moving their main operation to southern Gaza next, claiming that Hamas has headquarters in Khan Yunis. Meanwhile, in the central Gazan town of Deir al-Balah, a funeral was held for civilians killed by Israeli forces. Included amongst the dead were journalists Sari Mansour and Hassona Saliem, 
and they are two of the three reporters killed in Gaza over the weekend. Rockets have also hit a United Nations-run school in Gaza. This is what remains of the Al-Fakura school in the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. Hundreds of displaced Palestinians were sheltering there when the school was hit. The health ministry has reported that at least 50 people were killed by the assault. And we've excluded shots of what appear to be dead children and staff, as these are just too graphic for us to show you on this street. Israel has now warned residents to leave Jabalia refugee camp, an area that has already come under repeated fire. The most high profile of Israel's targets continues to be the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City, the largest in the Strip. It remains under Israeli control, but this morning 28 of the 31 premature babies at Al-Shifa were moved from the hospital and evacuated to Egypt. There were fears for the babies' lives after fuel run out in the hospital, meaning their incubators stopped working. The babies were accompanied by four mothers and six nurses. Israel has justified its prolonged raid on Al-Shifa by claiming that Hamas has a command centre beneath the hospital. This weekend, the IDF released what they claim are two further pieces of evidence for that claim. The first is this footage. Um, the IDF say it shows a newly discovered tunnel in the grounds of the Al-Shifa complex. You can see the camera descending an incredibly narrow tunnel here. Then there appears to be a jump cut to a wider tunnel. The IDF says the tunnel is 10 metres beneath the hospital and that it contains a number of defence mechanisms, including a blast-proof door and a firing hole. Of course, the existence of tunnels themselves would prove little, especially as the Israelis reportedly built some under the hospital themselves. This is from a 2014 article in the pro-Israel tablet magazine. The Israelis are so sure about the location of the Hamas bunker, however, not because they are trying to score propaganda points or because it has been repeatedly mentioned in passing by Western reporters, but because they built it. Back in 1983, when Israel still ruled Gaza, they built a secure underground operating room and tunnel network beneath Shifa Hospital, which is one among several reasons why Israeli security sources are so sure that there is a main Hamas command bunker in or around the large cement basement beneath the area of Building 2 of the hospital. So if they say, oh, it's clearly a headquarters because there were tunnels under the hospital, well, potentially they built the tunnels, right? Again, this doesn't prove that there wasn't a Hamas HQ. It could be that they took over tunnels built by the Israelis, but the existence of a tunnel proves very little. Now, Israel's second piece of evidence is CCTV footage. They say was taken in Al-Shifa on the morning of October the 7th. And this video shows what the IDF says is a hostage being brought to hospital by Hamas militants, or sort of strong-armed into the hospital by Hamas militants. And in this second um, video, the IDF claims that another hostage is shown being brought into the hospital by Hamas fighters, where he's handed over to medical staff. Now, again, that doesn't seem to me to prove the hospital was being used for military purposes. Um, Hamas wanted their hostages alive, and so they would take them to a hospital if they needed treatment. I'm not sure what the IDF wanted. Did they want the doctors to turn them away? Speaking on Radio 4's Today program, Israeli government spokesperson Elon Levy gave his interpretation of this new evidence. 
Israel has now produced abundant evidence that Hamas was exploiting that hospital for military purposes. Just yesterday, we released a video of a tunnel shaft that extends 10 meters underneath the hospital complex. That's more than two double-decker buses stacked on top of each other, leading to a 55-meter-long underground tunnel, leading to a blast door with a firing hole. Now, I've been to the Royal Free Hospital in London. I've never seen one of those under the hospital. It's very clear that Hamas was using it for military purposes. We've always said on this show, it is perfectly possible that Hamas located valuable military infrastructure in tunnels under hospitals, right? It, it would actually make some sense to do that. I mean, it's a terrible thing to do because you're putting lots of civilians at risk. But at the same time, if you want to make sure that you're putting your your military equipment in a place that the Israelis will struggle to bomb, then putting it under civilian infrastructure, I mean, you know, it's not implausible they would do it, right? As we keep saying, though, the existence of tunnels isn't evidence for that. Hospitals in Gaza are quite different to hospitals in London. He's saying, you don't have tunnels under the Royal London in the, the, the Royal Hospital in, in, in London. Um, so why should they have tunnels under hospitals in Gaza? Well, principally because Gazan hospitals are in a location that has been under blockade for 17 years. So Gaza is full of tunnels, right? Uh, kilometers and kilometers of tunnels um, under Gaza because that's been the only way um, to get goods in and out for over a decade, right? Some of them, I'm sure, will be used for military purposes. Lots of them used for trade, and the existence of them in and of itself doesn't prove anything. And the thing it certainly doesn't prove is that the target was proportionate to the damage done. Right? That's what we always say. It might be the case that there was a military target under XYZ hospital, but you have to prove that it was proportionate to put as many lives in danger and kill as many people essentially as you did to get to it. Also, if you've destroyed 50% of buildings in northern Gaza as they have, then that's a lot of military targets. doesn't seem plausible to me. In any case, let's go back to that clip. Not only that, we also released CCTV evidence of two hostages, a Nepali and a Thai citizen. Let's remember October 7th was a crime against humanity, not only against Israel. Two hostages being manhandled into the hospital in broad daylight. Everyone saw, all the doctors, all the doctors that the international media have been uh, interviewing for the last month, they all saw those hostages being manhandled into the hospital. This was an open secret and we're demanding international accountability now from the global agencies that have said absolutely nothing about Hamas's abuse of hospitals as human shields. I listened to the interview you had just now. The World Health Organization has not condemned Hamas's use of hospitals as human shields once. Not once. I you think know, we just it, heard them. I think we just heard them con uh, condemn Hamas. Because, because the World Health Organization ran a risk assessment at that hospital over the weekend, a risk assessment, and didn't think to mention once that as they were in the hospital, IDF soldiers outside were digging up evidence of Hamas attack tunnels and that all the doctors had seen hostages being manhandled. Okay. Is it possible that those, that those hostages you're referring to received medical treatment in the hospital? You know, if Hamas shot people, abducted them, and then took them into the Gaza Strip, I don't think they're getting the bonus points uh, they think that they receive. We no, also but know I know you've looked at the, at the I know you've looked at the CCTV footage. Is that the? Those, it, it, have have you seen hostages, footage of them being treated? Because I'm sure you'd want any hostage to receive medical appear. treatment. One of those hostages does not appear to be injured, as you said in the bulletin at the top of the hour. And that's again just such a disingenuous way to answer that question, right? She's asking him, were there people who were receiving treatment in that hospital? And he says, well, you, you, we shouldn't be giving brownie points to, to, to Hamas because they took their hostages to get treated, right? That's not what she was doing. And no one is pretending they would be doing it out of the goodness of their heart. No one is saying, oh, Hamas care about their hostages so much they take them to hospital. That would be a, a ridiculous line to take, right? But the reason Hamas might take their hostages to hospital, you know, if they're sick, 
is because hostages are more valuable alive than dead. Right? That's why you take a hostage because you have this leverage because the, the, the you know you can say well I'm 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 only going to give them back if you do X Y Z if you killed them your leverage is much lower right so the line of questioning there was about whether two hostages being taken to a hospital proves it was a Hamas headquarters or not and it doesn't I think it's also deeply cynical the way that Israeli spokesperson is basically saying. This means that every doctor you've been speaking to, every doctor or nurse that you've been speaking to this past four weeks, they're essentially in hock with Hamas. They've been lying. Now, those two pieces of CCTV footage, remember, to find those, presumably they'd gone through a lot of hours of CCTV footage. If that's the best evidence they've got, that every doctor in Al-Shifa is in, you know, in collaboration with Hamas militants, I don't think that's very strong evidence at all, right? Especially to do something as, as, as dramatic, saying, well, all these doctors... You know, basically not really doctors. These aren't civilians. These are these are people who are collaborating with Hamas. This release of supposed evidence to show that Al Shifa is a is a Hamas headquarters. What are you made of it? I think it's admirable on this program to engage in these questions of sort of verification, uh, interrogation, some of the evidence. I also think it's kind of missing the point. I mean, you mentioned the cynicism of this Israeli spokesperson, and. I think it, it falls into a, lo- a much longer line of sort of cynical portraits of the Israeli logic of this conflict. And I think it might be our task to not fall particularly into that trap. I mean, we'll all remember not so long ago when we were debating whether it was an Israeli airstrike or artillery or it was a, a failed um, Islamic Jihad rocket that fell on a hospital. We spent hours, if not days, debating whether or not Israel bombs hospitals while they were still bombing hospitals, while we still had a much longer record of Israel bombing hospitals and schools. Uh, we spent uh, all this time talking about whether or not... Uh, the Israeli military participated uh, in the death of civilians, for example, during October 7th, either to stop the advance of Hamas fighters um, or to you know, protect civilian lives, as, as, as they're saying. But we get caught in these questioning of, uh, of motives, of details, of forensic uh, aspects of some of these um, particular moments in this conflict. And we lose sight of what uh, Antonio Gutierrez was saying at the top, which is that more children have died. Uh, in this conflict in a month than in any other conflict. It's an unprecedented conflict in the 21st century in that regard. And this is what uh, Israel wants because it's uh, it's entered into a very no- a sort of non-falsifiable uh, logic of its uh, current conflict with Hamas, current conflict with Palestine, right? Sometimes they say it's with Hamas and then we point to the West Bank and they say, oh, that's also about Hamas. Sometimes they say it's about Israel and anti-Semitism, and then they choose to say, no, but non-Israelis were taken as hostages. It's therefore a crime against all humanity. This is a global cause, right? Sometimes they say we're doing a surgical strike uh, on Gaza. Other times their own generals say our goal is the eradication of Gaza, is the settlement of Gaza, the annexation of Gaza. We want them to be located elsewhere. And so um, I should. I don't think we should fall into the trap of saying, oh, there's a fog of war and we're trying to find our way through the fog of war. Rather, we should be looking for who's creating that fog, right? In whose interest is it to be kicking up dust and forcing us to walk through that fog instead of focusing on some of the basic facts of children dying, of families being evacuated, of an entire part of Palestine being raised to the ground and the humanitarian questions that that raises for us. But the basic kind of human question of how to create that durable and lasting peace, which Israel does not want to do.
And it should come as no surprise, therefore, that we see this galloping new line from members of the cabinet and uh, very vocal parts of the Israeli media to say, we will not bend the knee to international law, to pressure from our Western allies. We will do whatever we want, whenever we want, and we'll create a logic around that uh, sense of impunity that suits us. And either that's in the details, saying, oh, we did this bombing because of those Hamas headquarters, or they're in the grand scheme of things. Right, kicking up the dust of anti-Semitism or uh, you know clash of civilizations, uh, under which any type of crime, any type of violence can be justified under this banner of an existential threat to the state of Israel. And so, I think that you know we need to do this, especially over the medium term, as pressure builds uh, for serious mechanisms of international accountability, taking the architects of this unfolding genocide to the International Criminal Court and trying to make the case that must be made for their accountability. But I think it's also uh, incumbent upon us not to lose sight of the general situation in Gaza, which is genocidal textbook, as many people have, have said. And then that becomes the demand for a ceasefire, not this or that particular crime, although we could spend days, hours, years discussing the details, motivations, particular logic through which Israel is attempting to justify its particular actions, but to really focus on the kind of key headlines uh, of why every major human rights organization, why every major um, you know, organ of global civil society is now cohering around the same demand because the loss of life is simply intolerable, regardless of, as you mentioned, Michael, a tunnel built here, a tunnel built here, a Hamas headquarters here, or a Hamas headquarters there. The other issue is what's this all for? So why are they destroying this or that tunnel? There needs to be some sort of end goal to which this is aiming if they have any hope of sort of justifying what they're doing, which, you know, as regular viewers of this show will know, we don't think they do. Um, but on this point, um, I do want to go to something that was in The Economist recently, because while the war continues to destroy entire families, there is apparently still no sense among its Western backers what it will achieve, right? This is a passage from an Economist article over the weekend. After two days of talking to officials about the plan for post-war Gaza, the inescapable conclusion is that there is no plan. The shattered enclaves will need external help to provide security, reconstruction, and basic services. But no one, not Israel, not Arab states or Palestinian leaders wants to take responsibility for it. America hopes that Arab states will contribute troops to a post-war peacekeeping force, a proposal that is also backed by some Israeli officials. But the idea has not found much support among Arabs themselves. Ayman Safadi, Jordan's foreign minister, seemed to rule it out altogether at the conference. Let me be very clear, he said, there will be no Arab troops going to Gaza, none. We're not going to be seen as the enemy. The Economist goes on, the reluctance is understandable. Arab officials do not want to clean up Israel's mess and help it police their fellow Arabs. But they also do not wish to see Israel reoccupy the enclave, and they admit, at least in private conversations, that the Palestinian Authority is too weak at present to resume full control of Gaza. If none of those options is realistic or desirable, it's not clear what is. Now, I find, you know, interesting article, right? But I find it very interesting that it was published in The Economist a couple of weeks after they put as sort of their main leader why we shouldn't have a ceasefire now. You know, we shouldn't have a ceasefire now because that would only be building up problems for the future. Um, they're saying Israel has every right and should continue to go in there and try and destroy Hamas, however much civilian casualties they, they cause along the way. And the message being, it might be difficult in the short term, but at least in the long term, this is creating some possibility of peace. Now, in the same newspaper, right, a couple of weeks later, they're saying, oh, also, by the way, you know, even if Israel do achieve their goal, which is probably unrealistic, by the way, 
of destroying an organization which has been in control of a territory for 17 years is going to be very deeply embedded, right? Even if they do succeed in that goal, well, actually, there's no plan for after that anyway. So the economist is, is backing the continuing of the fighting, the continuing of the bombing, which so far has killed 13,000 people, more than 5,000 of them children, right? That, that's all fine with the, the economist. You, you should keep doing that because it, it's justified. The means justifies the ends. You could say the ends justifies the means. The ends, yeah. Um, and now they say, well, the end, all, all, actually, we've got no idea what the end is. Just seems completely stupid to me. I, I agree with this article that there is no plan, but if there is no plan, then what you should do is have a ceasefire and come up with a plan. And to be honest, in this debate, I mean, I think that means the international community has to really come in and say, Israel, you can't have what you want. I mean, presumably Hamas can't have what they want either. Get people around a table and say, this is a, a solution that could conform to international law. But saying, Israel, you just get to bomb as, as much as you like, even though you haven't shown us any kind of plan as to how this is going to work in the future, just seems completely bizarre to me. I don't know how you can possibly justify that. Um, we are going to go to a bit more footage now that was released today. So the big relief so far for the US and their allies is that Hezbollah and Iran haven't yet got involved in any serious way. Right? There was a worry that there'd be a war on multiple fronts for Israel. That hasn't happened. Um, the Houthis in Yemen, though, have hijacked a ship in the Red Sea, though. Um, this footage here shows a helicopter painted with Palestine and Yemen flags landing on the vehicle carrier. Um, the Bahaman-flagged vessel is registered under a British company, which is partially owned by an Israeli businessman. Now, it had been leased out to a Japanese company at the time of the hijacking. Now, in this very dramatic footage, you can see um, gunmen holding the international crew at gunpoint in the video. David, what's your view on sort of the international response to this from countries or states or groups which are hostile to Israel? I mean, I think it seems to me that probably the most sort of plausible explanation for what Hamas thought they were doing is they were going to prompt something so dramatic, a response so dramatic from the Israelis that Iran, Hezbollah, lots of different forces would have to get involved and then they could turn a position of weakness into a position of somewhat strength and Israel would sort of fall into crisis. Now, the first part of that plan, Israel responding in an incredibly dramatic and deadly way, has happened. But the response from Hezbollah and Iran has been somewhat muted. You know, they're going to be somewhat disappointed, aren't they? Apart from, you know, a little bit of piracy here or there. What's your what's your view here? I think it's too early to tell exactly what the international and regional response would be. But I think what you were saying before about the lack of plan or the paradoxical pairing of the no ceasefire, but what's the plan, as you mentioned from The Economist magazine, these all fit into my earlier comments about the non-falsifiable, inexorable logic of expansion that is built into the Zionist project. And it goes something like this. Either we go back to four years ago, when you see the aggressive, creeping Bantu stenification of the West Bank, uh, the bombardment, occasional bombardment of Gaza, the eviction of Palestinian families, this slow, controlled expansion, right? But Israel maintains a kind of sense of what's negotiating with the Palestinian Authority. You know, it's maintaining some degree of stability vis-a-vis -vis the ongoing humanitarian consequences of their siege on Gaza. Either they do that, and Israel tells the world, specifically its Western backers, look, we've got this under control as they creep into these Palestinian territories, violating previous agreements, aggressing over territorial and ancestral lands of Palestine, or they kick off a major conflict. A major conflict can be with Hamas, 
a major conflict can be around uh, with its Arab neighbors. And they say, you see, you see why it's so important to invest in Israel. You see why we're so aggressive. You see why we're so heavy handed. It's because we're in such a hostile neighborhood that we need all of your aid, all of your investment and all of your legal protection to do what must be done in order to defend ourselves from these existential threats. And this is why Israel has such latitude in terms of the way it, it maintains, sustains, and motivates this conflict. Because we've seen that these Western backers will also twist themselves into knots to justify Israel's decisions, right? We've seen the famous clips, of whether it's Blinken or Ursula von der Leyen accusing Putin of war crimes, that we then replace Russia with Israel. All of a sudden, no, those aren't war crimes. We've seen the economists say no ceasefire we must go ahead with this uh, conflict with Hamas. They must be taken out. You cannot negotiate with terrorists, right? And when Israel says, oh, that's not really our goal, even we're trying to extinguish and exterminate and evacuate all of Gaza, they go, well, that also makes sense because everyone's complicit. All the doctors are complicit, as you mentioned in the opening segment. All the neighboring countries, you know, are supporting these Gazans. They should take them as well. And so, it helps us, I think, to look again at the core motivating systematic sort of political economic logic of Zionism, which is this intense sort of expansionist logic. And so we see underneath the hood of some of these more uh, concrete, specific military actions, this inexorable idea that either Israel expands to eliminate Palestine, as Netanyahu was showing in his new map of the Middle East, the United Nations, or they integrate the Palestinians uh, into a kind of so-called one-state solution, which no one in Israel appears prepared uh, to accept. Right? And so um, I think when we think about these, these regional consequences, what concerns me most is the, uh, is the thoughtlessness uh, of the Israeli government. I think that they don't care and don't really know what would be the consequences of escalation. And they've hoodwinked their Western backers into not thinking also about the consequences of escalation. Because for Israel, thinking back to what happened after the last kind of regional conflict, where they were able to basically occupy even more land in Palestine, make huge strides in their occupation. This sets them up in a very callous and kind of cruel way towards a win-win. Um, you know, either they get away with committing these war crimes and there's no regional escalation, or there's a regional escalation that allows them to do, frankly, genocidal, ethnically cleansed uh, um, clearing of Palestinian territories in the name of uh, the defense of the project Zionism. You know, I mean, that's why the American response I find so frustrating, because basically they say, well, we can't tell Israel what to do. But at the same time, they're, they're putting their warships in the Mediterranean to basically say, well, Israel, we're, if, if, if Hezbollah get involved, if Iran get involved, we've got your back, we've got you covered. Um, which is essentially saying to Israel, you know, that's the only thing that actually could have disciplined Israel in this. You know, I, I, you know, the consequences of this developing into a regional war would be catastrophic, right? I, I don't think anyone's here saying, God, please, Hezbollah, start shooting your rockets. But the fact that Israel can do this and it has this insurance policy, which is that, well, if they annoy the neighboring states too much, then America will have their back. I think just gives them license to well, to get away with murder would be an understatement, wouldn't it? Because it seems to be getting away with genocide. And we will be going back to some sort of new state statements from Israeli politicians towards the end of the show um, who have really been um, upping the ante when it comes to the genocidal language, which we've been sort of showing you repeatedly on this show. Next story.
A self-styled anarcho-capitalist has won Argentina's presidential election. Javier Malay won 56% of the vote in Sunday's runoff compared to 44% for the centre-left Sergio Massa. Malay promised radical change in his acceptance speech. The situation in Argentina is critical. The changes our country needs are drastic. There is no room for gradualism. There is no room for lukewarmness. There is no room for half measures. The drastic measures Malay has promoted include ditching the Argentine peso in favour of the US dollar. Um, he says that's necessary to control inflation, currently running at 143%. Malay has regularly appeared on the campaign trail with a chainsaw in hand, indicating his desire to slash state spending. In this clip, Malay explains his plans for various government departments. Along with closing departments, including the ministries of culture, women, health and education, Mile wants to loosen gun laws, abolish abortion and allow the sale and purchase of human organs. The BBC spoke to some Argentines who voted for Millet. This is how they explained their decision. No estoy de acuerdo con todas sus políticas sociales, pero sí con la mayoría de las económicas. Y me parece que Massa no está dando su plan, no está diciendo qué va a hacer. Mucha corrupción con el gobierno que está, mucha pobreza, mucha inflación. Como ministro de Economía no hizo nada. Es el peor gobierno de la historia de la Argentina después de la democracia y por eso decidí votar un cambio. Me inclino por mi ley porque el modelo de país de este joven es un país, eh, como te dije, libertario, sin un hombre honesto, que eso ya es mucho. Se eligen de dos modelos muy diferentes, entre un modelo que para mí ha fracasado en América Latina y un modelo que es algo diferente, que no me convence del todo, pero que eh, muestra algo diferente y bueno, hay que, para mi gusto, darle la oportunidad. El futuro está en un cambio y el cambio estará por verse, pero no lo que hubo, son años de lo que hubo. David, as I say, you're, you're really our informal Latin America correspondent. Um, looking at those uh, vox pops um, from members of the Argentine electorate and then I suppose also how extreme this guy seems, uh, the thing that sort of struck me is, you know, what's going on in Argentina that it's so bad that they've chosen this guy? W what is the sort of economic and political crisis that those voters seem to be talking about? Yeah, I think it's uh, pretty simple in the sense that uh, hyperinflation creates monsters. When people see their money disappearing, evaporating, their hard-won savings, the stuff they're keeping under their mattress, I think it's uh, a kind of political centrifuge that throws people towards extremes. This is not difficult to understand. This, the figure you cite, 140% inflation, is uh, an understatement. We've seen an explosion of black market operations. Uh, and these, these, these kind of uh, proposals around dollarization, stabilizing inflation, are um, 
are exciting to people. They're calling it a, a plan for, for change when compared to the opposing candidate who was the sitting minister of the economy, who oversaw uh, the sustained deterioration uh, of the Argentine economy, uh, affecting, of course, uh, you know, the poorest segments of society the most, the rising, uh, rising poverty and insecurity that come with, again, this severe and sustained economic crisis. And it must be said, uh, a candidate who, yes, promised to defend long-standing rights of the Argentine people in the form of healthcare, pensions, universal public education, but was not presenting any really concrete or pragmatic plan to get Argentina out of that crisis. And so in the context of, you know, uh, it, I must admit, I mean, I'm, I'm, I may be your Latin American correspondent, but I was also, you know, even having been there for the first round as an official observer, I was taken aback by the extent, uh, scale of this thumping victory for Javier Millet, because I would have thought, mm, you know, between the devil I know, which is uh, 250%, 300% inflation, and the devil I don't, which is total economic chaos, exploding markets that we're going to see with massive, massive consequences. I mean, for someone in the context of this crisis, like Harvey Millet to say, there will be no mild measures, there will be no tepid responses to this crisis. That is not uh, stuff that international investors uh, and the bond, market, bond vigilantes, so-called, like to hear. So uh, there's a lot to unpack here, Michael, but I think the, the most important thing which we should get onto is, is really who is Javier Millet? Because I think it's very easy to kind of laugh at the, this kind of Reddit candidate, someone who seems to have emerged from the 4chan universe uh, in ways that are both shocking and despairing, but also kind of exciting to a certain uh, segment of the most cretinous people online. But it's helpful to go kind of systematically through some of those views, because those views, the core kind of um, nucleus of that program is going to determine what people he surrounds himself with, what kind of control over the state he's able to exercise, and what program ultimately gets implemented. Because that woman may have been right. You know, Javier Millet, I don't doubt that he is in his own way not a thieving man, but it doesn't mean that the people he's surrounding himself with, the program of total sacking of the state, absolute privatization, won't have devastating consequences. So who is Javier Millet? Javier Millet, as you mentioned, is a self-styled anarcho-capitalist with extreme views on the criminal enterprise of the state. You know, there's a guy who says, if I choose between the state and the mafia, I would choose the mafia. At least they have a code of conduct. He believes the state's responsible for nothing but the destruction of people's lives and, of course, the destruction of Argentine glory. He wants to return the country to its not 20th century, 19th century glorious liberal past, which is a nostalgia that we haven't even heard from the most extreme form of populists who only can harken back 75 years. He says, no, I'll do you one better and harken back over 125 years to 19th century Argentina. Now, again, this could be cause for laughter in some corners of the internet, cause for celebration. But let's go systematically through some of these views. So beyond the anarcho-capitalist market solve everything, let's see how that applies to, private, to, to education. He wants to privatize all education, doesn't believe in public education or public schools. He wants to give vouchers out to Argentine citizens so the schools can compete for quality. He doesn't believe in public health care. He wants to privatize all health care so that people are forced to pay and that the market can do its work. This is a conversation that should be very relevant to people in the United Kingdom today as West Streeting promises to invite private investors into the NHS as well. That, of course, same marketeering applies to the sale of guns, the sale of organs, even the sale of children, where he thinks, again, markets should be determinative, not the overbearing norms and institutions of the state. But it goes further than that. And this is a guy who says that climate change 
is a socialist hoax. There's a big country, Argentina, with a lot of uh, you know production, uh, national production and investment. This is a country that has a lot of weight, diplomatic weight, on the international level as well as the regional level in Latin America. This is someone who denies the very basic facts of, of climate change. He's not even one of those conservatives who says, yeah, climate is changing, but let's let markets take care of it. He doesn't even accept the basic premise of climate change. And then perhaps most dangerously, you know, this year we were supposed to be commemorating and celebrating 40 years of democracy since the people of Argentina defeated their U.S.-backed military dictatorship. This is a guy and his vice presidential candidate, who I would argue is as dangerous as he is, less funny, much more dangerous, comes from a military family, believes, uh, questions the the number of 3,000 disappeared people during the dictatorship, promotes the sort of what's called a two demons theory of Argentine democracy that, yeah, the state committed excesses, but they were doing it for a just cause uh, because they were fighting terrorists in the form of these kinds of resistance uh, fighters, uh, groups, organized groups, oftentimes on the left. Uh, the, 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 can I curse on this program, Michael? You can curse on this program. The shit communists, the shit tards, the, the left shit, shitty communists, as, as Millet calls them, that he claims are equally responsible for the, for the bloody years of the dictatorship. So on the 40th anniversary uh, of uh, Argentina's democracy, a celebration of the rights that its citizens have secured uh, over that time in the workplace, in hospitals and education, this guy comes in and says, oh, no, we're going to take a chainsaw to the state, as you mentioned, we're going to rip up all of these ministries chuck them out of the state. We're going to privatize the central bank. He's already confirmed that they're going to privatize all the public uh, broadcast channels, uh, Telam and, and others. They're going to privatize the state energy company, just selling off the family silver and realigning the country geopolitically is also very important. So because he is against these shitty, dirty communists, he's refusing for Argentina to do business with its most important international partner, which is China, but also refusing to do business with its most important regional partners, which are its neighbors, namely Brazil. Big, big partner that was making big moves under the last president to kind of integrate economically, open up new channels of trade. Uh, For Javier Millet, China and Lula are both shitty communists. And therefore, he intends to realign Argentina with two countries in particular that he sees as uh, the perfect direct allies of Argentina and to which he plans to visit before his inauguration on the 10th of December, which is coming up quickly. The next three weeks, he intends to visit Washington, D.C., and intends to visit Israel, moving Argentine, the Argentine embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem uh, in recognition of the special place uh, that Israel has uh, in the heart uh, of Argentine society. So it's not just a kind of nut job who was able to take advantage uh, of an immiserated uh, and challenged uh, Argentine society in the context of this enduring economic and now increasingly social crisis. It's also someone with a really, really well-developed paradigm uh, of a hyper neoliberal, you know, some a guy who's read his Hayek, who's read his von Mises, who prays to them as gods every night, and who's importing some of these really, really radical ideas. And so the question will be, you know, over the medium term, and I'll, I'll stop here and let you ask questions about any one of these kind of frightening aspects of this program, is to what extent, this is always the question, 
when a frightening neo-fascist takes off against a moderate social democrat. Is to what extent uh, the establishment in Brazil, and sorry, in Argentina, the establishment at the regional level, and, and of course the northern neighbor in the U.S. decide to say, mm, okay, listen, he's there. We're going to work with him. We're going to give him our support, and we're going to let him engage in this great sacking of the state, selling of the family silver, uh, because it's going to benefit us. It's going to enrich uh, international investors. Um, and it might appease uh, the IMF. You know, Argentina has been living in the context of a severe, the intense IMF uh, program. Uh, I can, we can get into a bit of the background about how that ended up in such a severely indebted position, uh, namely through Javier Milei's now biggest, strongest backer, ex-president Mauricio Macri, who got this 40 plus billion dollar loan for the IMF that then saddled Argentina with this debt. And so the Economist magazine once asked him, are you worried about the IMF? He goes, I'm not worried about the IMF. The IMF's austerity package is nothing compared to the austerity package that I will introduce as president of Argentina. So this is the ultimate tragedy where we are, Michael. You've got a president who's promising to resolve the economic, social, and political challenges that Argentine citizens are facing with real, real suffering that we cannot look away from, but whose program is only guaranteed to exacerbate those social, economic, and political crises towards a more general crisis, which is why many people are thinking, God, can he even survive these four years in office with such radical program that is really designed not to uh, address or ameliorate, but to exacerbate the underlying structural and superficial challenges that are facing Argentina today. I'm going to probe you with some more questions in a moment. First of all, I want to show some footage. I mean, you mentioned the pro-Israel there. We've got a, uh, some footage here of, of, of um, Javier Malay on the campaign trail, waving an enormous um, Israel flag. As you say, um, he has pledged to join the U.S. in moving the Argentinian embassy to Jerusalem. So very much someone in support of the state of Israel, including in its war on Gaza. As you say, sort of, he's, he, he says he is a proper alternative to a failed establishment. And as again you say, he really goddamn hates the left. Take a look at this interview. Al zurdo de mierda no le podés dar ni un milímetro. ¿Puedes definir zurdo de mierda que no Todos lo los que digamos los colectivistas, <risa> los que ponen digamos, o sea, esa idea. A ver, ¿por qué le pones de mierda, digamos? Porque son una mierda. O pero sea, vos mezclás, si, no, pero, ese, pero es que si pensás, pero no, pero, digo, pero si pensás distinto te van a te van a aniquilar. Ese es el punto. Es decir, vos al zurdo no le podés dar un milímetro, porque le das un milímetro y lo toma para destrozarte. Es decir, usa, digo, o sea, vos no podés negociar con el zurdo. No se negocia. No se negocia con esa mierda, no se negocia porque te van a llevar puesto. She's saying, don't, don't negotiate with leftists because if they agree with you, they'll kill you. I mean, who's he talking about there? Is, is he talking about the sort of social democratic incumbents who he's replacing or is he talking about, I mean, it's, it sounds to me sort of like a, a, a Twitter rant against like online leftists. Like what, what is the context here? How should we understand what he's saying there? Yeah, it's totally deranged. I mean, I think it's important to clarify what he's referring to as communism is the most like light touch social democracy a la Latin America. You know, this is someone whose views are so extreme that again, he would paint Lula as a raving lunatic communist who is, you know, seeking to destroy all individual liberties in the name of some revolutionary Leninist project. Um, you know, this, this person, things are moving so quickly uh, in, in terms of uh, these, these morbid symptoms of um, kind of, whatever you want to call it, late stage capitalism, but particularly in Argentina, that, you know, this guy who was considered kind of a, a laughingstock figure so recently can deliver this, this thumping victory. And so I think it's, it's really helpful to, 
to, to get behind that victory, get behind the appeal, get behind the Vox Pops, as we saw at the beginning of the segment, to understand just what happened with Argentina's debt. Um, so when Mauricio Macri, who, as I mentioned, is the ex-president of Argentina and now the biggest kind of um, godfather of Javier Millet, the guy who really brought a lot of votes in for Millet, uh, who is you know a kind of crazier figure, but Mauricio Macri is seen as more of a standard-bearing uh, neoliberal across the continent. When Argentina was was going through an economic crisis, he invited the IMF to come in and give uh, an illegal loan, so a loan that violated its own bylaws under President Donald Trump, who basically gave his stamp of authority to the IMF to violate its own bylaws. So technically, this is very Ill illegitimate and illegal debt that was sent over to Argentina. And it's not as if, you know, without getting into a too deep of a conversation about kind of macroeconomics and international financial or monetary systems, you know, this money came in as a as a debt package or as a uh, a bailout package, and immediately left the country because it was immediately used to pay off Argentina's international creditors. So what happens is Trump under Macri approves this forty one billion dollar loan that comes into Argentina, immediately leaves the country to pay off its international creditors, and leaves its people with an un completely unsustainable level of debt. And what does the IMF do? looking at the worsening, worsening, worsening crisis that it is inflicting on the people of Argentina as hundreds of thousands of people are marching on the streets decrying this debt deal, saying it's illegitimate, it's illegal, and it's unjust. The IMF says, we're going to introduce surcharging. We're going to charge you extra, a, a kind of penal um, extra charge on top of your debt because it's going to motivate you. It's going to motivate you to pay us back even quicker. So there was absolutely no forbearance on the part of Argentina's international creditors. And I think it's really important to emphasize this because this was not an Argentine election. This was, in every sense of the word, an international election. It's international in the sense that the structural determinants of Javier Millet's appeal are international, namely from the United States, D.C.-based, Washington, you know, IMF, that we run, even if a European is technically in charge. Um, but also critically, because Javier Millet has openly aligned himself with reactionary forces around the world, whether it's Jair Bolsonaro's son or Spain's Vox, who are in the bunker with him, or Jose Antonio Cast, a kind of, um, you know, comes from a family of Nazis uh, and is now Chile's leading presidential candidate. And so we need to be attentive also to that potential c contagion effect from Argentina to Chile in a couple of years, what it could mean, Millet's election for, for, for Chile, for the countries basically outside of its borders. And that's why we think is such an important uh, election is because uh, not only is it a kind of a weather vane for where politics are going generally across Latin America and around the world, um, but also because it's not as if this were a purely autochthonous social, economic, or political crisis. You know, Millet wants to make it sound that way. He constantly refers to the political caste. For him, this is an Argentine story. It's an Argentine story of 125 years of these thieving politicians, as he called them, raiding the state for their own personal profits and benefits. But for us, you know, coming from a, a more sober, sound, you might even say in social democratic or leftist perspective, we need to understand about some of these structural determinants, that centrifuge of hyperinflation and what gave birth to it. You know, we've seen anti-corruption politics become the main motor for uh, the neo-fascist right 
uh, around the world. This was the same in, in, in Bolsonaro's case, right, with Sergio Moro, you know, managing to put Lula unjustly behind bars, uh, cooing Dilma Rousseff. This is, you know, next door neighbors of Argentina and a longstanding idea that all that left governments do is steal and rob from the people and enrich themselves. You know, that's how Harvey Mermillet wants to paint this election. It needs to be our responsibility to put that in a broader historical, but also international context to say that this is a creature we made. This is a creature that we funded. This is a creature that we are now going to exploit uh, to take advantage of this, you know, um, fire sale of Argentine state assets uh, and public entities um, in the name of a, a glorious libertarian revolution. I am tempted to talk about Argentina for another half hour, but we should get on to our next two stories. Last week's vote against a ceasefire in Gaza was a low moment in Westminster in the face of thousands upon thousands of civilian deaths in Gaza, all perpetrated by a government spouting genocidal rhetoric. Both Labour and the Tories decided to support Israel's war. Many constituents are upset about that. There were protests outside Keir Starmer's constituency office in Camden over the weekend, and another MP, Labour's Joe Stevens had her office vandalised with red paint. On the BBC on Sunday, Rachel Reeves had this to say about the protests and the ceasefire vote. I was really sorry to see colleagues resign last week from the front bench. But being leader and hopefully next year prime minister, Keir's going to have to make incredibly difficult decisions and he's going to have to do what he thinks is right and offer that leadership even in difficult uh, times and there will be difficult decisions if we form the next uh, government but that's what leadership is all about. What I find very concerning is the huge pressure that MPs have been put on both leading up to the vote but also what we've seen this week. I support the right to protest. Suella Braverman's comments about these being hate marches etc are appalling but I don't support the intimidation of members of parliament. Of course, intimidation of members of parliament would be wrong. We are, though, I think, in danger of shifting into a moral panic about the most basic levels of accountability. Now, this was Alistair Campbell speaking on the weekend. I think there's something very, very strange about this. There's nobody in the world that doesn't want the violence to stop and doesn't want the bombing to stop. There's nobody that, that just is really happy about that. So, for example, the Green Party doing that huge social media campaign they did, listing all the Labour MPs and saying, these people, if you want to know the people who voted to keep the bombing going, there's a nastiness to the whole thing. And I just I just think that for Labour, just we, we, we've got such short memories in this country. Joe Cox, I'm doing a memorial lecture for Joe Cox later this week. Uh, David Amos, two MPs got killed. And you now see a situation because MPs are doing what, you know, they're paid to do, which is represent, in, take part in votes. Yes, follow the line sometimes from the party. But then to see, Rushanara Ali, who's a very, very good MP, thousands of people outside her marching on her offices. Keir Starmer, whether people like him or they don't like him, he's entitled to a private life, he's entitled to a family life, to have people... And we had this during the Iraq war. People turning up outside our house protesting, and I think Rachel's absolutely right. Protest is fine. Trying to intimidate people and silence them is wrong. So there has been one report of a protest outside an MP's house. It was in the Daily Mail. The MP was not named. In any case, I, you know, I, I, if it has happened, I don't think protesting outside an MP's home is a, is a good idea. Um, notably, though, Campbell went a lot further, and he seemed to have a problem with even listing which MPs voted against a ceasefire as the Green Party did. Now, this was 
the Green Party post on social media, which Campbell finds so unpleasant. I mean, it's odd he finds that so concerning because MPs' voting records are online anyway. Publicizing voting records seems to me like a pretty basic tenet of democracy. It's also odd because Alistair Campbell has quite recently done exactly the same thing. In 2019, Campbell, who has three times as many followers as the Green Party, published this list of every Labour MP who failed to vote for a second referendum on Brexit. That list was published three years after the murder of Joe Cox, which, according to Campbell's own argument, means he should have known better, right? He's saying that's the context in which the Green Party tweeted this, and that's very problematic. Well, he did the same thing. Campbell has also encouraged constituents to go and personally protest individual MPs. After Kwasi Kwarteng delivered his economy-collapsing mini-budget last September, he said this, If you have a Tory MP, find out where they are this weekend and make sure they know what you think of what happened today, especially if you voted for them, because you believe they were serious about levelling up. This nonsense can be changed, but only if those MPs go back to Westminster and change the minds of the people at the top. Now, that tweet there was published less than a year after the murder of David Amos, which Campbell mentioned again in his Sky interview. Um, so very disingenuous from Alistair Campbell. I think, you know, also that panel, it was a former advisor to David Cameron, Alistair Campbell, and then I think she was, well, she was a senior editor of The Economist now of Politico, Anne McElvoy, who's you know, nodding along like this is all completely common sense. That no one wants to continue the bombing. No one wants to continue the bombing. Guess who wants to continue the bombing? The Israeli government, because they want to make Gaza unlivable. And then it seems that there are lots of people in the world with lots of power who are very willing to let them continue to do that. The idea that everyone wants to stop the bombing, we just disagree on how to do it. Yes, some people want the bombing to stop when everyone has been either killed or driven out of Gaza. That's some, you know, no, no, one is, no one is suggesting we bomb Gaza forever. The question is, at what point do you stop bombing it? Do you stop bombing it while there are still some people alive? Maybe? Because it doesn't seem like Israel is too, too, too keen to do that. Um, David, I want to ask you, you know, this happens all the time, these conversations, sort of like the the safety of MPs, are, are, are they being intimidated? And I mean, it is important to know, like there are two MPs who have been violently killed um, in, in this country since 2016. So I don't, I don't think it's unreasonable for MPs to sort of have concerns about their safety at all. Um, I also don't think, you know, like protesting outside people's houses is a good idea. You know, their family will be there or their family might be there. But what Alistair Campbell said, there was sort of like thousands of people marching outside Roshana Ali's constituency office. And for me, you know, thousands of people on a demo makes it a more legitimate demo, whereas he seems to be annoyed that so many people turned up to this demo. I'm your Latin American correspondent, but I'm also your friend from uh, from the United States. And there's something that just reeks of a certain British sensitivity to how dare they, you know, make us uncomfortable, you know, the nastiness of accountability. And I think it's obviously not a surprise that it's Alistair Campbell who's making a comparison to uh, to the Iraq war and, and trying to sort of absolve uh, himself in the process of absolving uh, Keir Starmer of his own personal responsibility for the ongoing uh, unfolding genocide in Gaza. I, I personally personally don't see any problem with protesting anywhere. A peaceful protest is a peaceful protest. We need to be mindful of the tactics and the language. And of course, uh, you know, making sure that any protest that we are uh, endorsing or participating in is, you know, not design, designed, whatever is designed with the spirit of um, civility in the, in the broad sense of towards a specific political goal. Uh, but the idea that it's not legitimate to be raising voices. And I'm, I'm also nervous about 
leaning too far into their idea of what counts as intimidation, because the line between intimidation and accountability is so thin. And of course, we're not talking about cuts to health or cuts to education. We're talking about the uh, murder of over 3,000 children. These are life and death circumstances, not hypothetical life and death circumstances. These are literal life and death circumstances. So the whole thing, it feels very, um, you know, uh, sort of not just sad uh, and pathetic, but also deeply, deeply cynical. The idea that citizens, uh, you know, it's very, it's very American also in the sense of like, you know, use your, use your vote at the ballot box. Don't tell us what to do as, as your MPs. And I think that that goes generally to this idea that Keir Starmer, you know, is going to have to make difficult decisions, which has been their line on every unpopular uh, policy position they've been taking over the past few years. And the goal is to try to have as much latitude as possible to create circumstances in which they ever have to say that they, they did something wrong, they don't ever have to admit fault, uh, and they don't ever have to bow to public pressure because if, they're, if the public is with them, then that shows how great they are. That suggests how much virtue they have. But if the public is against them, that shows how brave they are, how courageous it is to take a position that's deeply unpopular in the name of what speaks to them in their heart. So all of these positions are ways to deflect from basic democratic mechanisms of accountability. For that reason, I find them so particularly enraging. Thank you for that. We have a message for you before we move on. Navarra Media are readying ourselves for 2024. We want to expand our capacity to report on the issues that matter to you and people who watch and listen to this show. Um, we're working really hard to bring you the coverage that the mainstream media consistently fails to provide. Um, and lots of you are tuning in. Um, to join the people who fund our journalism, um, do head to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Um, you can donate anything from just one pound per month. A regular donation of any amount really does help us to plan further into the future, um, sort of further enrich our content and hopefully expand our reach. Um, so that's navaramedia.com forward slash support. If you are already a subscriber, thank you so, so much. Um, if you aren't one already, please consider becoming one. Our next and final story of the evening. While Western politicians like to pretend Israel is a liberal country fighting a targeted war against terrorists, its leaders are saying otherwise. And just in the last three days, we have more terrifying examples. First, Yair Lapid um, is part of the supposedly centrist opposition to Benjamin Netanyahu. This is what he told Sky on Sunday about the Gazan death toll. You have to remember, John, many of the people who were killed were terrorists. The, the majority of people who were killed were Hamas terrorists. People are saying this number, 12,000 12, people were killed. Yes, this is the Hamas is an army of 40,000 people, and many of them were killed, and, and good riddance. So we know 12,000 people, at least, have been killed in Gaza. Five and a half thousand of them are children, right? So there is, there is no way a majority of the 12,000 people are Hamas fighters, right? Unless you consider basically every adult in Gaza a member of Hamas which does seem to be what many people in Israel do consider them to be, right? All of Gaza, we, we've heard this so many times before, everyone in Gaza is a fair target, essentially. And remember, Lapid is supposed to be the centrist opposition to Netanyahu. So everyone, oh yes, you can criticize the government of Netanyahu, but you can't criticize Israeli society in general. Well, Netanyahu, his opposition is someone who thinks that everyone in Gaza is a safe target, it seems, right? That there isn't this sort of lovely liberal... Israeli politician who's just waiting to take over the country doesn't exist. The Labour Party, sort of the traditional liberal Zionists, they have four MPs out of 120. 
So it's, it is a deeply conservative and reactionary country at the moment. That shows the, the, the general attitude to Palestinian life across the Israeli political establishment. And among the military establishment, it's just as scary. Giora Island is the former head of the Israeli National Security Council. And he penned an article in a major Israeli newspaper over the weekend where he said this. Now, this is really terrifying. The way to win the war faster and at a lower cost for us requires a system collapse on the other side and not the mere killing of more Hamas fighters. The international community warns us of a humanitarian disaster in Gaza and of severe epidemics. We must not shy away from this, as difficult as that may be. After all, severe epidemics in the south of the Gaza Strip will bring victory closer and reduce casualties among army soldiers. This is a former very high-level military official saying publicly, writing in an Israeli newspaper, that Israel should allow and encourage epidemics to spread in Gaza because that will help them win the war. Now, what's especially terrifying here is this has very recently been quote-tweeted by Israel's finance minister who says he agrees with every word in the article. Every word in the article. So that is someone in Netanyahu's cabinet, the finance minister, a very, very high up role. And this is especially sinister, especially terrifying, because this is already happening. Now, this was published by Politico on Sunday. The International Rescue Committee on Thursday warned of the inevitable spread of waterborne illnesses such as cholera and typhoid caused by contaminated water sources and a lack of sanitation. Currently, 95% of the population in Gaza has no access to safe water, while 64% of primary health facilities have shut down, IRC warns, as Israel conducts a lethal bombing campaign. The conditions are ripe for the spread of communicable and waterborne diseases, diseases that adversely affect children and lead to preventable deaths, said Bob Kitchen, the IRC's Vice President of Emergencies. The World Health Organization on Wednesday warned that lack of fuel has disrupted waste collection and caused desalination plants to shut down, leading to a significant increase in the spread of bacterial infections, such as diarrhea, which has already hit 33,000 people since mid-October. You've got senior politicians, you, the, the finance minister saying he agrees with every word in an article by a former um, major general in the military, who, as I say, sort of led the, the security um, establishment, who's saying, we want to allow or encourage epidemics to spread. And you've still got Western politicians saying this isn't collective punishment. No, no, this is a targeted strike against Hamas. Cholera is spreading, right? Because they've cut off the water supply, they've cut off the fuel so the desalination plants don't work. And what happens in that situation? Disease spreads. Now, you've still got people in the West, still got people in Britain saying this is just the inevitable consequence of war. It's all Hamas's fault. They are backing collective punishment, which is going to kill, which is already killing 5,000 kids and is going to kill a lot more. And that seems to be part of the plan. Now, it is incredibly grim, especially as the spread of disease will disproportionately affect children in Gaza. Meanwhile, some children in Israel have come up with a new song.
within a year, we will annihilate everyone. Right? Song by Kids. It was published on the website and social media accounts of the state broadcaster, Israel's public broadcaster called Can News. Now, they later deleted it without explanation. Of course, there is some dissent to this intensely violent message coming from Israeli society. But it is heavily policed. At a small protest in favor of a ceasefire in Tel Aviv on Saturday, police didn't allow signs saying, one massacre does not justify another, no to apartheid, no to the occupation and siege, stop the war, and BB go home. Those were all um, taken out by the police and weren't allowed to be held at a protest. David, this is all very much reminding me of segments we did on this show when it came to sort of Russian politics and society when they invaded Ukraine. You had the Z movement, sort of the sort of popular outpouring of support for you know, a, a brutal invasion of a neighboring country, right? Genocidal language coming from politicians. And when that was the case, you know, we did those segments, but so did the BBC. So did all of the, you know, major liberal outlets. They sort of said, this is shocking. Russia is a sick society. We need to sanction it. It's beyond salvageable, right? The, the whole society is sick, is what we heard. And we're seeing pretty much the same scenes in Israel, but we're still pretending that Israel is this normal liberal country that's just doing a, a, an aggressive counter-terrorism operation. I think this gets to the core of why we, by we I mean the community uh, around Navarra uh, and around the world, are against a war. We, we call ourselves anti-war. We call ourselves anti-war not just because of the consequences of war, um, which is, of course, uh, a motivation uh, that is sufficient to call for a ceasefire, to pursue a negotiated peaceful settlement to some of these conflicts, but because war itself is a cause. War is an engine of genocidal sentiment, especially in the context uh, of a government that the international community has been decrying for months as highly reactionary, neo-fascist, uh, very you know, homophobic if we want to go into the realm of social policies. And if you have that as the vanguard uh, of a government, then war becomes an engine through which those fascist and genocidal ideas are then transmitted to a society. You show the clip of the children singing, and I think it's a great, a great example of what I'm trying to illustrate on what I think is the core uh, spiritual logic of the anti-war movement as I understand it and as I feel we should all understand it together, which is that war creates genocidal sentiment. War itself is an engine of hatred and division. I think that we uh, are all too often uh, convinced that the consequences of war will create uh, a movement for peace, that the consequences of war will motivate us to feel sympathy or empathy. We feel that the images of dead children and dead families and bombed out buildings will be sufficient to convince the, the perpetrators that they are uh, committing uh, not just crimes, um, but you know, real humanitarian uh, crises uh, in, the, in the context uh, of this of this particular war, but they're equally likely to harden the hearts of the people who are perpetrating those crimes, to radicalize, to militarize, to push them towards uh, even more bloodthirsty genocidal sentiment. And that is the reason, the double reason for a ceasefire. It's not only so we can stop the, the, the violence and protect Palestinians uh, in their fundamental rights enshrined in national and international law. It's also to try to stop, to try to notch 
the the that transmission to 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 clog that node that's moving from the highest levels of the Israeli government deeper and deeper into Israeli society and outward to its Israeli backers who seek not only to justify but to motivate some of these really terrifying, truly genocidal sentiments that are becoming commonplace. That is why we stand so firm on, on an anti-war platform, not because this or that conflict are just or unjust, although I would be happy to debate those merits, as I'm sure you have many times on this program, but it's because war creates its own monsters that endure long past the narrow confines of a particular conflict to indoctrinate new generations with the trauma and of course, with the uh, l- hatred for the uh, kind of you know um, bogeyman opponent uh, that is now hanging over their their life, their society, their community for the rest of their lives, these will be defining moments that uh, create and embitter entire generations uh, of people uh, against against Palestinian life and livelihood, and that is what's most terrifying, I think, in this moment. I've seen a number of times sort of right wingers say, oh, well, you know, yes, they're killing Gazans. But did you see all, all Gazans were sort of cheering in the street after the Hamas attacks? So even the kids are cheering in the street after the Hamas attacks. Now, obviously, not all Gazans were cheering in the street after the Hamas attacks. But I'm sure you do have a lot of, you know, hatred of Israelis in Gaza, right? That's, that's not surprising. It's what I always say to my friends, whether they're sitting in Los Angeles or New York or London or anywhere in the West that's been aiding and abetting this Israeli regime. We do not control how people react to genocide. We do not control how people react to apartheid. We do not control how people react to ethnic cleansing and displacement. We can only control whether or not there is the, whether or not a a genocide is committed. We can only control whether or not displacement is, is continued. We can only control whether we endorse support and justify ethnic cleansing. And that is why we cannot get caught in the trap of comparing certain hatreds on one side, certain hatreds on the other. It's why people always want to, it's important to emphasize the difference between the occupier and the occupied. It's why it's important to emphasize this is not a war because a war cannot be fought between Israel and Hamas. But it's critical to understand where those nodes of complicity are because Of course, people are going to react in that, talk about a centrifuge, you know, people are going to react all sorts of ways to the conditions of their oppression and the systematic uh, kind of elimination uh, of their people. And we cannot control how people react to those conditions. That's why the condemnation conversation felt so far out of place. Uh, and so confusing and so requiring a further interrogation to understand why condemnation became the word of the day. We can only control whether the side that we are aiding, abetting, financing, and protecting at the international level from uh, the consequences of their crimes uh, uh, continues. And that is where we need to be focused, I think, in the days, months, and years ahead. I mean, I think that is where most on the left have been focused. Um, Let's wrap up there. Um, David, it's been a pleasure having you on this evening. Michael, I hope it's not the the last time, even if it's the first, because you know it's always a pleasure to to, to join no, you here in a more. I'd, I'd love to get you. I'd love to get you back on co-hosting soon. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. I'll be back in the hosting chair tomorrow um, at six p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.